Welcome to episode 190 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Tahin Montoya. My biggest takeaway from this episode is how critical asking questions to find your next step forward is. Tahin is currently serving in the Air Force Reserves, and she shares her experience in the military and how she ended up in the reserves. Her path to the military started by joining junior ROTC in high school, mainly because people told her she couldn't do it. Then she learned about ROTC, where she could get her college paid for and commissioned. I really enjoy getting to talk to Tahin and to hear about her experience as a Latina serving in the military and how that influenced her joining and serving in the military and the career that she had. So let's get started with this interview. Welcome to the show, Tahin. I'm so excited to have you here. I'm very excited. Thank you again for the opportunity. Well, thank you for being a guest on the Women on Capitol Hill panel. I got a lot of really good feedback, and I'm hoping to do something similar in the fall. And so hopefully that will happen. It was, yeah, it was a great episode and so much good feedback. So yeah, it was really exciting to be here. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to be back. So excited, very excited to be back. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? I know a lot of my colleagues and friends have said like they've always wanted to join the military. That was not necessarily my case um, because I, I first generation Colombian American. So I don't have any other family members that currently serve. And so for me, it was a kind of an act of defiance. I went to sign up for high school and I saw that there was like I was reading through options and signing up for classes. And I saw that there was a gym option and I had never heard that there was any alternative for gym. But in, in my high school, Lowell High School in Massachusetts, giving a quick shout out, I saw that there was the option to do ROTC or like band or I think it was like culinary. And so I started asking, I was like, what is junior ROTC? And every answer I got was, oh, you're too girly or like, there's no way you can do that. Or you're, you're too Latina or you're too feminine or too whatever. So I checked it out of defiance to kind of prove people wrong, not really knowing what I was getting myself into. And it just grew into something unexpected. It was something that fit me really well. And um, as someone whose parents couldn't afford college and whose parents were very clear and very, very open about their inability to like help me through college. It also provided the opportunity to get a scholarship. I ended up getting a, a four-year Air Force scholarship to go to Norwich and then commissioned at the end of that. And so very unexpected. And it was, it all started out of trying to prove someone wrong. I love that. It kind of shows your character from the beginning of like, you can't do this. Yes, I can. Just watch me. Yeah. 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 But I mean, way easier said than done. So sometimes I was like, what am I doing? A lot of times, actually. That's true. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, I'm going to prove you wrong. And then it's like, oh, this is a lot harder than I thought. So did you have a mentor who helped you? Because some people who do JROTC, which is odd, they don't find out about the ROTC program in general. And like they end up enlisting just because they weren't given the right, not the right guidance, but they weren't given all the options by their leadership. So how did you find out about ROTC for college? Yeah, that's actually a good question because um, I'm still very involved with my junior ROTC unit. And that's also a common theme that I've noticed that a lot of them understand the concepts of serving the military and are very well versed in the history and everything. But when it comes to understanding the differences between enlisted and being officer, it's, and it is kind of a murky route, right? Like, or like distinction because we're both serving, but in different capacities. And so for me, it was Chief Jocks, Chief Bobby Jocks, who was part of the ROTC program. And I knew that I wanted to go to college and, and I was very clear and very very open about like, I want to go to college. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it, but this is what I want to do. And it was 
I, I think it was a combination of him seeing my commitment to the program and knowing my how committed I was to going to college that he kind of explained to me the officer route that, again, I, I had no idea was something available to me. So yeah, so it was through his guidance and affording me the opportunity to ask questions and then not being afraid to ask questions, which someone from a Latino background, you know, we're, we're not necessarily taught to ask questions. We were taught to respect our elders and to be mindful and just to keep quiet and stay out of trouble. And so, again, I was kind of different in that I was not afraid to ask questions. And, and so asking questions kind of unexpected, opened all these unexpected doors for me. Yeah, I love that. Asking questions. That's such good advice, especially when you're joining the military, because there's so much. There's so much. Even people in the military don't know all the things. Right. Or or it's and it's easy to be it's easy to understand not wanting to ask questions, right? Because you don't you don't wanna be that person. And but I've also had to your point, like a lot of friends and colleagues who kind of like signed a lot of stuff and have committed themselves to things without fully understanding what that commitment entailed and in a multiple of like a whole spectrum of things. And so I totally have become that annoying person that asks the questions, but I'm okay. I I feel comfortable in that space and I will encourage others to do the same. Yeah, that's great advice. So you got an Air Force ROTC scholarship and you went to Norwich University. So what was that experience like? For multiple reasons, the demographic in Northfield, Vermont is very, is not as diverse as let's say where I grew up, which was Lowell, Massachusetts. And in Lowell, they have representatives or people from 62 different countries. So really, really diverse. And not only because it's Vermont, which is really, really cold, colder than I expected, but then also because it's a military school in Vermont, like that demographic was significantly less diverse than than what I grew up in. And all that to say, so I felt a little bit out of my comfort zone and naturally clinged to, you know, friends that are still my best friends today, which was a Dominican, Stacy Pichardo, who's now a lawyer for in Boston, and then Dilfusa Sanginova, a Russian-born, Tajikistan-raised foreign exchange student who had no idea what she was getting herself into, and like handful of other diverse folks, right? Like I just naturally gravitated to those of us. And it was like a group of five of us. But I do think it was like, I myself wanted to go there. And it was because again, the challenge aspect and proving people wrong, showing people that, you know, Latinas can be strong minded and can join the military and can become officers. And I think it was what I needed at the time. I needed the space to grow, the space away from my family, um, to face challenges, but in a face a safe environment, comparatively speaking. And I think it was the right step for me in preparing me for the military, given how little I knew about it. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear about diversity from someone who's white and went to a school that was primarily white people. And like, I never really thought about how much of an impact that would have and how much more challenging it would be to go to school when you like don't really like you feel out of place. I mean, I feel kind of out of place at college anyways, and then to add that extra layer. So it's really interesting to hear your experience. And it's why it's so important that we have like the diversity of people sharing their stories, because, you know, you feel awkward, you can hear your story and know that they're not alone and how they feel. Yeah. And that feeling of not necessarily feeling like you fit in is 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 something that allows you to relate to other people in different capacities, right? Like we recognize we're all all different, but the fact that we all feel different is in itself a commonality. And so, but yes, to your point, um, 
and I definitely don't want to belabor it on too much, but there was one instance where I had, I genuinely almost got in big trouble at Norwich because there was someone who said that I threatened her and said that I had family members in the FARC that would after her. And I was like, that is the most obscene and ridiculous thing. And talk about stereotypes, right? That you're assuming because I'm Colombian that I would be involved in some kind of something ridiculous like the FARC or that I would have family members and that I would threaten you with that. And so, uh, and, and not pointing fingers in any particular direction, because I thankfully nothing came of it. But like the fact that those were, that was an allegation that was taken seriously and that they were looking into it was ridiculous. And similar to that, when I went to commission, Montoya is a very popular name in Colombia. It's like the Smith, if you will, like a Smith. And the number two drug lord at the time happened to be Montoya and he got caught. And so then it was a big delay in getting my clearance and being able, possibly not being able to commission over the speculation that I could have been related to him. And so it's like little stereotypes like that, that came from, I guess, being in a, in a less diverse demographic area. Yeah. And why those biases really matter. Like maybe they don't matter to most people, but they do matter to the people who are being affected by the situations and not just like a small thing. Like had someone been like, well, you have the same last name, so you have to be related and like pulled your clearance. That would have like, it would have been the end of that. Yeah. Not only clearance, but like loss of scholarship, you have to repay that money back. Um, Can't, you know, not being able to join the military. And so there's a lot of implications from buying into stereotypes and biases. So definitely. So luckily, everything worked out and you were able to commission. Where was your first assignment? Where did you get to go? So my first assignment after training was um, Tyndall Air Force Base in Tampa. So definitely not a hard assignment, if you will. Supporting heavy ops. So mostly KC-135s, unit level ops. So really in support of pilots as they prepared to fly. And so that was and from there I was I deployed uh, twice. And so um, really it was a really good experience as like my first assignment to really get a feel for quote, the real Air Force, I guess you could see, you could say. And, um, but again, also lots of eye-opening experiences in that it was all very new to me on multiple levels. And where did you deploy to? You said you deployed twice. Yeah. So to Qatar and then Kyrgyzstan. And where are you, were you like a maintainer? I don't really understand. Sorry, I should have been more specific. So an analyst, so Intel, Intel by trade. Um, And so it was a lot of like, just prepping them for missions to Afghanistan and Iraq at the time, and just making sure that they were aware of threats and knew what to do in the events that that something happened. Yeah, Intel is a high ops, high deployment job. Yeah, but I will say, so it also afforded me the opportunity to get exposed to international humanitarian efforts, I guess you can say. Um, I've, I've always been one, you know, something that I'm very thankful to my parents for one of the many things is that they were, they always taught me to the importance of giving back to the community. And so for me, up until that point, it was very much so in Lowell, like the community that helped me get to the military and through college. But it was during my deployment to Kyrgyzstan, where I was able to volunteer as a humanitarian coordinator. And it allowed me not only the opportunity to get off base, but it allowed me to see how easy it is to make a positive impact in the communities around you. And I I left that deployment, not only getting a good sense of what my job was professionally, but understanding 
how little acts of kindness can really make a difference and how it doesn't take much effort to make such positive impact. As an example, like on base, they were throwing away, they due to the constant rotation, they're always throwing away these mattresses. And it was like, I want to say like within a year or two, they would be throwing away these perfectly good mattresses. And so as a humanitarian coordinator, I was matched up with a, a town in Vasilyevka, if I remember that correctly, in, in Kyrgyzstan. And when I first visited there, I recognized that it was pure winter. It's really, really cold. And that a lot of people were sleeping on the floor. And so again, not afraid to ask questions. I went on base and, you know, because it was a big transit hub, the community of people who actually were there were very small. And I just started asking questions like, what happens to these mattresses? Is it because they're not good? Or is it because, you know, I found out that there's a policy that by law, you have to change those mattresses out frequently. And so I was like, well, if they're still good and you guys are just going to throw them away, if I find a truck, would you be opposed to like just giving them to the village? And obviously some coordination happened, had to happen, but the village provided the truck and the base ended up donating over 200 mattresses to the village. And so little things like that. And so, you know, no one lost money. No one had to give money. It was just asking questions and not being afraid of hearing no, which thankfully in that case, it ended up being a yes. So little things like that. I I got a taste of that humanitarian effort piece, which really, really grew on me a lot (laughs) and has really stayed with me throughout. Yeah, I can relate to that because when I was in Afghanistan, I saw the need and I wanted to find a way to help people who were outside of the United States, because it kind of like changed my worldview by leaving the country and going overseas and seeing. And I'm a really big fan of micro lending. And I use Kiva a lot for micro lending because they do loans across the world where you can support. And I love they have the feature that you can focus directly on women and then do loans. So we always support women who are trying to start businesses around the world. And I pick different countries based on like like certain events that are happening and it's a really great program. So cool. I have n- I'm not big on the finance piece, so micro lending and all that stuff, not terms I'm familiar with, but that sounds awesome. That sounds really, really cool. Yeah. Sometimes there are no interest loans, sometimes they are interest related loans, but people band together and give $25 and then they give them whatever amount they're asking for and then they pay back the loans and they have like a 98% repayment track record. So all the money that I don't we donate, we get 98% of it back and then we re-donate it out. So it's just like a continual cycle of giving more money and then re-lending the money that we've already given. I think that's so amazing because again, Something so little can mean so much for someone else. You know, I'm not saying that $25 is not a lot, but it can mean a lot more to someone else. And so that that's exactly an example of what I was saying. Like it's little things. And there's so, especially nowadays with how con- interconnected we all are, there are so many ways to go about that. And it doesn't necessarily require going beyond your means or beyond your capacity. It's just finding unique ways to offer help to different communities. So I think that's awesome. I'm going to look into that. Yeah, and I'll link to it in the show notes. It's Kiva, K-I-V-A dot org. They're a great organization. And I know there's other micro lending organizations. That's just who we started with. And so we've been giving with them. And I also, I was at Manus as a transient. And so like the fact that they rotate out the mattresses, it makes me feel a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's actually, that's probably why, you know, that's probably why, you know, and, and, but you'd be surprised. A lot of the mattresses, 
um, at least from what I saw, a good handful of them still had the plastic on them, like to make them last longer. And so, but, but then at the end of the day, you know, and I was very transparent when giving it to uh, the community and, and let them know that they're not new, that they're used, but that they were lightly used. And it, when they're in circumstances where it's like sleeping on a cold floor or like a mattress, like clearly they're going to be more willing to accept them. And so they were, and we did something similar with coats with, uh, for the winter. So it was really, really rewarding experience that, um, kind of like once you get stung by the humanitarian, international humanitarian bug, like that, that's (laughs) a lot of people stay there and that's kind of been at, you know, at the core of what I love to do, um, as well. Yeah. I think that's, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we can do at home, but there's also a lot of stuff we can do internationally. So it's nice to have the balance of doing both. So that was your first assignment was Tyndall. And then what happened next? Actually, in Kyrgyzstan, uh, I've always wanted to, at least one of my goals while serving has always been leveraging my cultural and language language capabilities to kind of propel Air Force mission in whatever capacity. And so I always wanted to do the counter-narcotics piece mission specifically to counter the stereotypes that I had to fight while growing up. And to show that to fight against the stereotype. And so um, in Kyrgyzstan, I was offered the opportunity, like the volunteer opportunity to give the J2 at the time a tour, like the the incoming J2 to Afghanistan, a tour of the spaces. And I said yes, which another tidbit, never take down a volunteer opportunity. You never know what what doors it's going to open. And so I, I went ahead and I gave her the tour. And uh, during lunch, she asked me, she was like, so what do you want to do? And so I go into this long, long-winded spiel, which is very Tahina-like. And I'm just like, well, I know I can't do it until I'm blah, blah, blah. And she's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to work counter-narcotics. And at that point, I only thought counter-narcotics was in Southcom, which is Miami. And we kind of left it at that. And she, you know, she forward deployed to Afghanistan. And um, I just like, I happened to be on the VML that summer, like as I was there. And all of a sudden, there was a by name request for me to go to join an interagency task force South working counter narcotic missions, but it, it was in Key West, Florida. And I was like, there's, there's an Air Force job in Key West, Florida, like, and it's counter narcotics, and it's a captain. So I don't even have to wait until I was what is going on. And so like, I obviously jumped on that in like a split second. Like, I don't even think I thought about it too much. I was single at the time. So there wasn't much to think about. And again, opening doors, right? And not being afraid to ask questions or take opportunities or or at least it's okay to be afraid with them, but don't stop yourself from trying to see what happens. But, um, and so, yeah, it was from there that I got stationed at Key West and working the counter-narcotics piece, working on the operations floor, 24-7 ops and towards the end of my assignment there, I was the interpreter, the translator for the J5. So I was able to travel all throughout South Central and South America, kind of translating for the J5. So I started off at the watch floor and quickly, you know, not quickly, slowly throughout the years built up <laughs> very slowly. Um, and I ended up being kind of like their interpreter and traveling with them. And so that was really cool. And the added cool piece talking about breaking stereotypes is I was towards the end of that, I was pregnant with my first son and the J5, who was a Marine, Caucasian Marine. I was like, you know, sir, like I'm pregnant, but I still want to do this. Like, can I please go? And I was like, you're, you're, I understand. Like, if you don't want, he's like, no, he's like, can you do it? And I was like, yes. He's like, do you want to do it? I'm like, yes. And he's like, then come. And so he let me do it until I could not like, could not fly anymore. And the faces of the high ranking officials 
in Central and South America, seeing a Latina Air Force officer who was pregnant stroll in with a J-5 Marine Corps colonel was fabulous. I loved it. I, I lived for that. It was so awesome to, without even having to say anything, being able to like shift the conversation or like just shift the narrative and have them think twice about the what women can and cannot do. And it was great. It was great. And so I was very thankful for that opportunity and that experience. Yeah, that's really cool. And that's awesome that you had the support of your leadership so that you could do that. And you said you met your husband. So how did you meet your husband? I, I met him there at uh, Jed South. So we were co-workers. And so, yeah, I was on the watch floor and there was rumors. I mean, Key West is small. It's an island. And so it's a lot small. It's a very small community. So there was whisperings of whenever new people were going to be coming on. And and he, he hates that I tell this story, by the way. But and so, like, I had heard that there was like a Latino officer coming through and there was, you know, talks about that. But I was very much so, which is, you know, talking about struggles. And I, I will gladly talk about my struggles. But that was one of those phases where I was very much so struggling. If I'm being like in retrospect, being very honest with myself, I think it was at a time where almost too much change was happening. So it was that nonstop deployments, back to back long term deployments. And uh, with that trip to Afghanistan, it was I came back from a deployment with my orders to go to Key West, which was awesome, but they gave me less than two months to get back, get situated and figure out and then out process and then pack everything up and then go back. And then it was straight to 24 or seven ops. And so it was, oh, and added bonus of, I was in a relationship at that time that I was very convinced was gonna be someone that I was gonna be, the person I was gonna be marrying. And all that to say, it was it was a struggle. It was a big struggle that I think a lot of factors contributed to that. And a lot of that was, it was almost like too much change. Like whatever that threshold is, I think we each have different thresholds and I had hit my threshold. And so to get back to your question, like I was not in a place to try to meet somebody at all. And it was the bottom, like for multiple reasons, it was at the bottom. I did not care to meet anyone. And so I had heard, but I was very much in my misery space, if you will. And I heard that he was... Latino. And I challenged him. I'm like, but how Latino are you? I was like, like, you're saying you're Latino, but like, what are you talking about? And so then he started talking to me in Spanish. And I found out he was Colombian. And I was like, wow, not too many Colombian officers in the US military that also speak Spanish. And so we just naturally had a lot of things in common. And one thing happened, one thing led to the other. And then we got married. <laughs> but but back to the struggle piece is, yeah, that's one of the many phases of my military career where there was a struggle. And I think, you know, as I reflect, as I'm in a point of transition, I, I, I'm, you know, as to whatever happens after the military, I'm, I'm like, you know, did I, like, I know there's people that struggled like very badly or like really had some traumatic experiences. And I would, I would never say that I experienced what some of those people did. And I would never try to equate my struggles to other people's struggles. And so I want to put it out there that when I talk about my struggles, I'm not trying to say that my struggles are worse or better or different than anyone else's, but I would also make a case for, I think many service members struggle continuously throughout different phases of their military career. As you and I were talking a little bit before, like when I first joined, the struggle was I was the first family member, still am the first family member and in my family to be in the military. So lots of changes there and lots of 
first and kind of like going to uncharted territory. Then it was dealing with imposter syndrome, which I still deal with. And then it was this phase that we're currently talking about where it was a mental health stint. And I want to say, I think this is the first time like I'm talking about it because there's still that stigma that I would like to convince myself that I'm not like, oh, I know that we're beyond that stigma, but it was very much so I reached out to, you know, I was going through all those changes and I reached out to my supervisor at the time and said like, Hey, I just, I don't know what's happening, but I don't feel like myself. And the response was like, you're fine. You're fine. You're good. You're going to be fine. You're good. It's just, you're on the watch floor, but it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And then, you know, some time passed with no, you know, no action on my supervisor's part, but me still not feeling great. And so I went to his boss's boss. So like my boss, my boss's boss. And, and I said, it happened to be an Air Force officer and an added layer of complexity is it's a joint environment. So like you have multiple chains of command. So who are you supposed to go to and who do you trust when you're new? And I myself couldn't understand what I was going through. So how am I supposed to vocalize and communicate what I'm feeling? And so I went to the Air Force um, major at the time and I was like, hey, I'm not I'm not feeling like myself. I'm not sure like what's going on. And it was to the point where I was like holding it together at work. But the minute I would walk through the door, it was tears, consistently crying all day. And then I would get it back together. And then I'd go back into the office and figuring it out. And it wasn't until a civilian coworker caught me being a hot mess in the car, like completely breaking down in my car. And she's like, Tina, you need help. And, and it was, it was kind of that point where I honestly, the embarrassment was the one was what led me to actually like put my foot down and say I need help. But it quickly catapulted. And I'm saying this hopefully for whatever, you know, if if someone's out there who's like in charge of people, it quickly catapulted into me trying to reach out for help to address what I was going through that I myself could not put my finger on. And it turned into Tina suicidal and she needs help and like having 24 hour supervision and going up to Patrick Air Force. And it took it to a whole new level where I felt this incredible loss of control. I felt like my whole entire career was on the line because I spoke up and said I wasn't feeling like myself. And I mean, I can delve into like what that turned into it. You know, they were trying to mandate to put me on meds. and, And I told them, I was like, look, I understand that. And I respect you. And I respect your you know, like that you're an expert in your field. I am telling you, I do not need medication. I just need a pause. I need a break. I need to talk to someone to sort through my deployments and coming back from a deployment and breaking up with someone that I thought was going to be in my life for a lot longer and moving. And that's what it took. It took me having a civilian therapist to like talk through my issues. And that's all I needed. I wasn't, I wasn't suicidal. I didn't need any medication, but it was it turned into like a tornado of stuff that quite honestly made my situation at the time significantly worse. Like everyone was being more hurtful than helpful because they were just not listening to what I was trying to communicate. And I know we veered off very much so from your original question of how I met my husband, but you can see how clearly I was not in the place to be meeting anyone. And so, yeah, that's a very long answer to your question. Yeah, but it talks about how important it is to listen to people because when I got home from my deployment, I was like, I just feel like something's off. And the therapist was like, well, you just got home. You'll be fine. And like, instead of saying, well, why don't we like talk about why you feel this way? They just brushed it off and were like, you're fine. You just got home from a deployment. Wait a few months and it'll be okay. And because she told me I was fine, I never went and got help. 
And I often think about like how that conversation could have went so differently if someone had just listened to me and been like, I just feel like there's something off and I don't know what it is. And like, I couldn't even put it into words. And it wasn't until years later, I got counseling through Cohen Veteran Networks and I was able to talk to someone and just go through some of the struggles that I had and I think that's what we need to like listen to people because some because the military throws so many hard things at you deployments, moving, like living far away from your family, all these things that like most people don't have to deal with any of them. And then you have to deal with all of them while you're trying to live your life and do your high ops job. And I think that's why mental health is so important and why it's so important we listen to people. Yeah. And I think one of the, um, and it was scary. It was so scary to, to do what I'm about to say, but I advocated for myself. And so there was a lot of people, even though I was very scared by it, but there was, like I said, they wanted to put me on medication. They were saying that I was suicidal. And I repeatedly had to tell them like, no, that's not the case. They also at Patrick, they wanted me to see a therapist, but on base and given my clearance, I refused to. And I guess within specific parameters, I'm not saying like go completely left field, but don't be afraid to advocate for yourself because Ultimately, you know what you need. And so I told them, I was like, look, I'm telling you I need to talk to somebody and I'm only willing to talk to somebody if they're off base. So I was able to get a civilian therapist through the Family Readiness Center. And I was also hesitant. I I went there and I didn't want to talk. And she's like, you know what? I just need you to show up. You don't have to talk. We can sit here for a whole hour and you don't have to say a thing. I'm hoping that eventually you grow comfortable with me where you know that you can trust me and that nothing's going to leave this room. And eventually I hope that you're going to get to a place where you're not, you're going to call to cancel my appointments because you don't need me anymore. And once I gained her trust, that's exactly what happened at like the fourth session, I would call to like reschedule or I would call to like cancel. And to her, instead of being like trying to convince me to go, she saw that as a sign of me getting better. And it also gave me tools to really process stress and anxiety and grief in ways never expected. So I really took that very, very stressful time and, and I grew so much as a person from it. But to your point, um, it could have gone a multitude of different ways. And so don't be afraid to advocate for yourself because ultimately you genuinely know what, what is going to be best for you and what, what you need to, to feel better and to get better. So true. Yeah. And I did an interview with Cohen Veterans Network, and they're a great organization that supports active duty, military dependents, and then even people who are not military dependents, but they're connected to the military, parents of people in the military, siblings, and they have such great resources. So I'll link to that in the show notes so that people can find that if they're looking for that. You said that you worked until you were like so pregnant, you couldn't travel. So what was it like to have your first child? Like, how did that change the dynamics of being an officer in the military? The good thing is I, I worked, so I was with the, worked with the J5, but then traveling, but then I was also on the ops floor for at least the early stages of my pregnancy. And then when it got to a point, I was working in a different part of Jida South. I would say it changed my dynamics. I mean, for things that you don't think about when you're not pregnant is, you know, like, or when you're not you know, things that you just don't think about because you don't know. It's not, I guess, like, it's not because you don't want to think about it, but like daycare and how who's going to take care, especially because my husband is also in the military, you know, so and we're both on shift work, opposite schedules. And so 
how is this going to work? Where are they going to go? Are we going to get assigned together? And so it's like, it dropped so many more questions on the table. I also, in my mind, my intent was to breastfeed for as long as possible, which thankfully I was able to do, but it also kind of contributed to an initiative that I worked on very recently. You know, I was like, how do I breast, you know, how am I going to find the time to breastfeed on 24 seven ops? Who can I talk to? Who's going to understand this? Where am I going to store the milk? How am I going to get it to my baby? Then when it came to PCS, how am I going to move with all this stuff? So it was there that I realized like an added layer to the already stressful situation is like, is motherhood and serving. And you know, we did very much so have that conversation. Like, is the, does this mean that I have to get out? You know, and, and that conversation since becoming a mother in 2014 became much more frequent. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it was literally something like, okay, we're struggling either as a family to stay together or a we're pregnant again. Or, and so for me, the first thing I was like, oh no, this means I have to think about, am I going to be getting out and and what that means? Because that's a whole other thing as like, I'm now realizing getting out is not as easy as it sounds on multiple levels. And so, you know, what did that mean? And so in retrospect, I think I grew as a person, of course, and I love being a mom. um, But, you know, it really, from that first pregnancy, it came about, I realized how the many different ways there could be to make the military more inclusive for women, especially those who choose to be mothers. And as it relates specifically to breast milk and um, affording them the space to want to pump or breastfeed if they choose to, or if they can, because I recognize that not every parent wants to do that and nor should they feel pressured to do that. And then through PCS is how do I get that milk to where we're going next? And at that point, it was coolers and dry ice and paying a lot of money out of pocket to make sure that my baby had a stash when we when we moved up to DC. And, and yeah, I was having a lot more conversations about transitioning out. And what really helped me there was having a, a partner that we had. I mean, don't get me wrong, like we've obviously had our bumps in the road, but having a partner that we could have these conversations, right? And that they weren't necessarily the easiest conversations, but very transparent conversations about opinions and, and perspectives and what we were going to do. And so that that really helped in that part. But but yeah, definitely opened my eyes to the added stress of being a parent in the military. Yeah, I think the military has changed a lot. I got out in 2013. And now you get a year after you have a baby before you have to deploy. And at the time, it was six months. And I was pretty fresh coming home from my past deployment that leaving at six months with a baby, I was like, I could not get my brain past that. And that was like the driving factor for me getting out. So the fact that they've extended maternity leave, extended the time at home before deploying and have made a lot of changes for women in the military, it makes me wonder, like, what would that conversation have gone like? Because that was like the driving thing. Like, I don't think I can leave my six month old and go to Afghanistan. I just I was like, that was the reality of what I was facing. And I couldn't get past that. But had it been like a year after, it probably would have changed the whole dynamics of that conversation. I've noticed a lot of change too, especially as it comes, especially as it relates to the barrier analysis working groups that the Air Force has kind of sanctioned. I want to say, I definitely don't want to misspeak, but from my possibly limited knowledge, I've seen that it's the only service to have like to empower these specific groups to specifically go at addressing, you know, barriers in policy as it relates to specific 
underrepresented demographics of, of our population within the Air Force. And with that, there's a sense of empowerment, right? There's a sense of empowerment that if you identify a problem, you can drive these changes. It's going to take a lot of work, but that whereas before, back in like in the early, you know, 2010s, 2012, 2013, a lot of it was like, well, this is the rule. And like, who am I? I can't change it. And if I join the military, then I just have to accept that this is the fact. And so we were a lot more constricted to what options were. And and so I do think we're definitely moving in the right direction. I also think the conversation would be, well, maybe in my case, maybe not so much different, given what ultimately contributed to me going to the reserves. But I do think there's more options now. And I, I do, I'm also part of, part of me is just like, man, what it would be like to be active duty now. I, I still feel like part of my, I still feel like I have one foot in each door, if I'm being very honest with you. So I do feel like I get to still reap the benefits of be, of like serving. Like I have one foot in the door, which I feel sometimes I think it's very beneficial. Other times I feel like I'm like undecisive, I guess. Cause I'm just like, in, in both worlds kind of thing. So, but, but yeah, I think right now the bogs, I'm, I'm very proud of being in the air force and, and how they have empowered their service members to drive the change, the necessary change to make sure that it's more inclusive. And so I'm, I'm very proud of that. Yeah, for sure. The air force has changed so much and it was that kind of like, this is how it is. And if you don't like it, get out. And so like, that's, I was like, well, I don't like that. And I don't want to do that. So I'm going to get out. And there wasn't the sense of like, if you don't like it, and you think it should be different, you could advocate for change. And like, it wasn't that wasn't Yeah, it was like, if you don't like it, get out. And that's the way it is. And the military is changing partly because of like recruitment, like they have to change to keep people in and partly because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. So exciting. I'm very excited about the change that with all the change that already has happened. And I'm really excited to see what continues to happen. Yeah. So you mentioned that you switched from active duty to reserves. So what was it that led you to decide that us being dual military isn't working and that I want to switch over to the reserves? While we were in Key West, we started the conversation. Uh, my, my husband is prior enlisted, just to give you a backstory. So he was prior enlisted, got selected to go to the academy, then commissioned through the Naval Academy. And so he is has already hit his 20 years. But because of the academy, like those four years don't count or some weird math. And so anyways, he's closer to retirement than I am. But he told me that one of the things he's always wanted to do is to be an attache. And I recognize how competitive that program is. And so and I certainly was not going to stop him from applying. And so I said, yeah, like totally apply. Like let the system stop you. Don't let me stop you. Right. So he applied and I didn't know this, but it, you know, he tried to sell me and being like, it's a family thing. Like you're, and I didn't realize that, but no, you as a spouse also get interviewed and you get, have to take part of the training and everything, which was really cool. Long story short, we, we got selected. And so I'm execing at the inter-American defense college and I get a call. He's like, babe, we got it. And I was like, awesome. And then it was complete, like immediately followed by, oh my goodness, like complete crash with reality, which is going to lead to another point, but like complete crash with reality. Here I was like, we're in a groove. We balanced this out. We're both in DC. We're both progressing our careers. And now reality hit. So long story short, I tried to call AFPC and I was like, look, I have cultural background. I have a linguistic background. I have exposure in, you know, Central and South America. Is there anything available in Panama? I will take anything. And the answer, you know, hopefully I, I do wonder if the answer would be different today, but the answer was like, nope, 
the only option is for your husband to give up his assignment to Panama for you guys to be together or to, for you guys to be geographically separated. And at that point, I was eight months pregnant with our second son. And that just wasn't an option for us. And we decided as a family that that was not going to be an option for us. And so I had a really, oh, you know, expletive moment. And so my, my advice for anyone who wants to take it is I know that transition might seem like it's far away, but you always have to be prepared for unexpected changes that might contribute to, for you to have to transition earlier than expected. I'm not saying sell yourself short and don't envision a career long, you know, a career with the with the Air Force or with the services, but you definitely want to be prepared for what might happen before then. And so I explored my options. I, I obviously still wanted to serve. And so that's when I decided to go to the reserves and use my post 9-11 GI Bill to kind of explore my academic opportunities, which is another thing I offer is we have those of us who have served literally have fought for these benefits. And although it's a tedious process to kind of tap into those resources and benefits, um, it's something you fought for and it's something you deserve. So what the way I viewed it was like, if I don't use that in this case to pursue my doctorate, that's going to be like $100,000 that I'm just giving away back to the government after all the different struggles that we've already talked about. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to do this for me. And I also saw it as a way to be productive while my husband was also accomplishing one of his dreams, which was serving as an attache. So that's what kind of contributed for me to transition. And I happily, I mean, I feel like I could talk, like, talk a lot about the application process and like the post 9-11 GI Bill. I just saw you did a post about trying to see if you want to use yours. And I say, go for it. I know you were deciding like what to go for, but the sky's the limit. I say, just go for it. And that's another thing. I'm a lot of times people have asked me like, how are you going to do this? I'm like, I don't know. I'll figure it when I get there. And that's literally what I do. Not necessarily the best approach, but a lot of times I'm like, I have no idea. I'll just, I'll cross that bridge when I get there. And so I say, Amanda should totally go to school. That's my vote. Yeah. I have always wanted to go back to school when my kids were in school. And then I homeschooled the last two years because of COVID. And so now that they're going back to school, I was like, oh, I want to go to school. I had been thinking about getting my degree in English or like in a master's in fine arts. But then I was like, I really like math and science and I really miss math and science. So when I started looking at colleges, I was like, I don't know what to do. So I it is something that I'm planning on doing. And I'm really kind of excited because I kind of had put engineering on the like, I'm a writer now. I don't want to be an engineer. But I, I actually realized I want to be both. I want to be an engineer and I want to be a writer and I can do both. Can I just take a moment to clap to that? One of the things that I didn't realize that kind of stumbled, again, stumbled upon, which I highly encourage you to explore, is there's a lot of universities that have master's programs with graduate certificates. So for example, at Georgetown, I didn't know this, there was a graduate certificate in gender, peace, and security. And the only requirement was that you were a student at Georgetown. Of course, you had to apply. So I was able to use all my electives of my doctorate program to complete the graduate certificate in gender, peace and security, which tied into my dissertation. And so when I graduate, which I'm putting it up to the dissertation gods is going to be next year. I'm putting, if I put it out there, then that means hopefully it'll happen, right? I'm going to walk away with not only a doctorate, but then also a graduate certificate. And I was able to explore different facets of what interests me. So maybe in whatever program you're exploring, there's a graduate certificate that you can kind of tack on there. That's a great piece of advice. And 
it kind of opens how there's so much you can do with the GI Bill that you don't really think about until you start like asking questions on LinkedIn and find out that there's all this other information out there. Another thing about asking questions, which hopefully is what folks are walking away with, my program was not covered, was not matched by the Yellow Ribbon Program. The school did promote itself as a yellow ribbon program, but for my specific program, it was not an option. And I simply asked why. And I was like, you know, because you're promoting yourself as a yellow ribbon program and their undergraduate degrees and some masters did, but the the doctorate didn't. And I was just like, you know, I mean, I was nice about it, but I was like, can can I understand why it covers certain programs and not others? And their answer was, we don't know. And so then they came back and I was like, they said, we now cover it under the yellow ribbon program. And that was literally all I had to ask. And so, I mean, don't be a jerk about it, but don't be, don't be afraid to ask questions. And now it's changed. And so I was able to use not only my post my GI benefits, but then match whatever difference there was with the, the yellow ribbon program. Yeah, that's, that's really good. I, I really love how we have talked so much about like asking questions and like advocating for yourself and how challenging like some aspects of the military are and, and how you should always be ready for transition. I feel like That is something you should always be preparing for transition because you don't know what's going to happen. So I feel like we covered a lot and we could probably talk for another hour, but we don't have another hour. So I want to end the interview with what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military? So I kind of go, at least I, I, my poor brother has probably heard this more than he cares to. I always say that actions have consequences, which is we know, and we typically has a negative connotation, right? But when you take and make certain decisions, there's good consequences and bad consequences, depending on whatever decision you take. But if inherently it's something that in your heart of hearts, you took for yourself and you thought that was a good decision for you at the moment, it's going to be a lot easier to deal with those consequences, whether they're good or bad, if it was some a decision you made. So what I would encourage someone who's considered joining the military is forget the try to dismiss the fog of people giving you their opinions of yes, it's a good idea and why and no and and why not. Everyone's experiences, regardless of what decisions you make are going to be different. But in your heart of hearts, if it's something that you want to explore, that you're intrigued about, that you're interested in, then I would say go for it. And it's a lot easier to deal with whatever comes of that good, bad, ugly, or indifferent. If you knew that it was something that a decision that you took yourself without without listening to the fog of what everyone else was saying. I love that advice. It's such good advice. And it's something that I think I that's what I tell people is like, if you have an inkling and you're looking into the military, you really need to figure out like why you're looking into the military and then figure out if the military is right for you. Because there's a reason that you're looking, there's a reason you're listening to this podcast. So follow that that gut instinct and then see where it takes you. Thank you so much for your time. I really love doing this interview and I'm so excited that we got to do it. Yeah, me too. I'm so excited and good luck with all the great, exciting changes that are happening for you um, in the near future. Thanks so much 
much for listening to this week's episode. If this is your first time listening to Women of the Military podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast. There are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in, joining, serving, leaving the military, or just learning about the women who have served in the military. If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military. And if you enjoyed Women of the Military podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service.